Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So, dressed listeners, I am very excited today because spring has officially sprung in New York Finally. City. <laughs> it's about freaking time. <laughs> and, and since Cass and I last recorded, it was actually the Vernal Equinox, which took place on March 20th, 2021. And, you know, it's just been so beautiful here the last few days. The sun is out, the birds are chirping, you know, some of the plants are starting to, you know, pop buds. And, you know, in keeping with this sort of fresh start that spring promises all of us each and every year, we thought that it would be a really good idea to bring you an episode on a designer who truly brought something fresh to the world of international fashion. And her name is Hanae Mori. Yes. As the first Asian woman to ever be admitted into the elite governing body of French haute couture, the Chambre Syndicale, Maury's career in Paris during the 80s, 90s, and into the early 2000s might be familiar to some of our listeners who are big collectors or dealers of vintage, as also might be her signature butterfly motif, which really became synonymous with the design empire that Maury would build throughout her career. Yes, and today we are so pleased to be joined by fashion historian Ayaka Sano to learn more about the earlier portion of Mori's career, which paved her way to Paris. You know, from her childhood in Japan, where she first began her career in fashion and film, um, to her move to America, where she was simultaneously cross-pollinating both the Japanese and American markets. We are so thrilled to learn more from Ayaka about this amazing designer and international businesswoman. Ayaka, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Dressed. Ayaka, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed to talk about your work on Hana A. Mori. And, you know, some of our listeners who are diehard vintage collectors or dealers may be familiar with her work, but I would guess that her name is a little bit unfamiliar to many, if not most, of our listeners. And and like many women designers of this era, her name has kind of faded a bit into obscurity, but, but it's something that we're going to rectify today, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Yes, yes, we're delighted. Um, My first question to you is, how did you first come to study Mori's work? My research on Hanaya Mori stemmed from my master's thesis, uh, which I completed last year for NYU's MA program in costume studies. And just to tell a bit about myself, I am a researcher in the history of dress and textiles with a particular interest in looking at Japanese culture and history through the broad lens of fashions. And I'm from Tokyo, so this kind of research focus really developed very organically while I was pursuing my graduate studies. And when the time came to choose my thesis topic, um, I was scrambling through a number of potential themes and topics. And at the time, I happened to be starting a course on 20th century fashion history as well, taught by Professor Nancy Deal, who um, I know was featured on Dressed earlier this season. And also my former professor as well. Right. Yeah. And um, I was 
thinking about some Japanese fashion designers、um, in the Western industry during the 20th century. And I realized that I didn't know much about Hanae Mori, even after having studied you know, various aspects of fashion history and also being a Japanese native. And you know, as you mentioned, her designs still very much circulate today in the vintage market. So I found that to be very strange. And I knew that there had to be some kind of connection between Mori and the American fashion industry. So, upon doing some、um, preliminary research, I found out that she had this career、um, before becoming an art couturier in Paris, in New York. So,、um, that kind of was followed by a research visit to the Iwami Art Museum in Japan. And they hold a significant amount of archival garments and promotional materials related to Hanae Mori. So, it was through realizing that there was a demand for research on this relatively specific but very significant period in Mori's life and career. And so, I decided to、um, delve deeper into it. Yes. And we are going to delve even deeper into that today on dress. So, would you tell us a little bit about Mori's early years growing up in Japan? Hanae Mori was born Hanae Fuji in 1926 in Shimane, which is a,、um, in Western Japan. And she was born into a very privileged family. Both of her parents came from wealthy families. Her father was a doctor and surgeon who had、um, a very established local practice. And she was the fourth child of five. And was really brought up in a quintessentially traditional Japanese family setting, you know, with her father being very strict and stubborn and her mother being this very quiet, kind homemaker. And Mori talks a lot about her family in her memoirs. So、um, this shows that、um, her family and upbringing were very important to her. And the family was not only well off and well educated, but they were also very well dressed. And This was because of her father, who really took care in making sure that he and his family had clothing made with you know, the latest high quality textiles that were often ordered from like, luxury department stores in Tokyo. So, whenever he would travel, he would bring back kimono textiles for his wife and Western style clothing for his children. And so Hanaya recalls in her memoirs how she was quite embarrassed in school because at the time, most girls wore kimonos. And you know, she was there kind of wearing this fashionable Western style dress. Yeah. And, and, and also,、um, you noted in your, in your work on her that when World War II broke out, she was 12 or 13. This was an incredibly formative age for her at this time. Did, I'm wondering, did she, you know, you also say that she wrote not just one, but several memoirs. Did she ever write about her experiences living through World War II? Absolutely, yes. And she published four memoirs throughout her career. And I think、um, her memories of the war appear to some extent in all of her books.、Mm. And so, just to kind of build off of you know, her upbringing, she moved to Tokyo in elementary school because her father you know, was very forward thinking and he believed that you know, his children should be educated in Tokyo. And so, while he would continue to work in Shimane, His children and、um, eventually his、uh, wife as well moved to Tokyo, and Hanae Mori just、um, stayed in Tokyo basically throughout her、uh, formative years. And so she was 15 years old when the Pacific War broke out and you know, Japan entered the war. And she was a student at a women's college then. And even though she could stay in school, 
female students were also forced into working for the war effort. So Mori also took part in this work at an arsenal. And once the air raid started, many living in Tokyo evacuated to rural areas. And so Mori's mother and younger sister, who she was living with, returned to Shimane. But you know, Hanae being very adventurous and determined to stay in school, she decided to stay in Tokyo and, you know, survive through this quite like life-threatening condition that was brought on by the war. Yeah, well, I, I think that's just a harbinger of her adventurous spirit, which we're going to learn more about as we go deeper into this. But she was very, fairly fearless, I would, I would say. Absolutely, exactly. And I think that kind of stems from her background, you know, living through these kind of tumultuous times. Yeah. So I'm curious, what impact did the war have on the Japanese fashion industry? The war had a tremendous influence on the ways in which clothing was produced and consumed in Japan. But the garments themselves, particularly when considering women's wear, changed. So Ever since Japan opened its doors to the outside world in the late 19th century, Western influences in popular culture, consumer goods, and fashion have been pouring into Japanese society. So department stores, for instance, were very much inspired by their American and European counterparts. And in terms of fashion, men and children increasingly adopted Western-style clothing, but the process was very gradual for women. And, you know, I think there are many reasons for this difference between the westernization of menswear versus women's wear. But, you know, there were a lot of hurdles in adopting Western dress. You know, when we reflect on Western clothing in comparison to like non-Western dress like the kimono, there's often the idea of greater comfort and mobility and, you know, the idea of modernity. Mm-hmm. But to actually make this change on a very personal, everyday level, you know, one had to know how to make these clothing or, you know, have a tailor make them. Or, you know, there was a question of how to, and when to wear this. So for Japanese women, it wasn't that they didn't prefer Western clothing, but there just wasn't a significant reason to adopt it and get to get accustomed to this new sartorial culture. Mm-hmm. But this all changed during World War II. All of a sudden, women who, you know, for the most part were homemakers were required to join the war effort and also be ready physically to be able to evacuate very quickly during air raids. So they began wearing a type of garment called mompet, uh, which is a bloomer style pants, um, usually tied at the waist and paired with a wrap style top, which still evoked the kimono. So these were traditionally worn as workwear by farmers, but um, quickly adopted by women during wartime. So these types of garments and life during the war became the impetus for women's wear to quote-unquote westernize and for Japanese women to be comfortable wearing this type of new clothing. Yeah, and, and I love this so much, and you and I have talked about this a little bit before, but um, your and I's work have a little bit of an overlap like at this particular point in time, because our regular listeners have heard me mention many times that I wrote my master's thesis on Tina Leeser. And Tina visited Japan and she wrote about how there was this enormous interest in what women were wearing in America. And she has given several interviews about how she could barely leave her hotel because there were all these reporters wanting to interview her about American fashion. So I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about the two terms, yofuku and wafuku. 
you know, yofuku literally means um, Western clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically the Japanese word for clothing in general today because most people wear exclusively Western clothing in their everyday lives. Um, and then wafuku means Japanese clothing. So the garment we typically call today the kimono. And the word kimono literally just means a thing to wear, so just the clothing. So um, these distinctive terminologies, you know, yofuku and wafuku, were important in distinguishing these different types of um, dress that came about after um, Western dress was introduced to Japan in the Meiji period during the late 19th century. And so, you know, going, you know, moving a bit forward in time into, you know, the 1940s and 50s, there was a boom in yosai, which means Western garment making, um, especially during the years right after the war, when Japan was still under the U.S. occupation from like 1945 to 1952. So, you know, there are certain statistics about um, how, you know, Westernization of women's wear um, happened. And I'm quoting some statistics from an article written by Masahito Inoue, who's a scholar in fashion history in Japan. And he says that in 1925, 1% of women in Ginza, which is, you know, at the heart of Tokyo, wore Western clothing. But 30 years later, in 1955, only 4% wore wafuku, so Japanese Mm. clothing. So over these 20, 30 years, there was this big switch to Western clothing for women. And, you know, as you mentioned, certain figures like Tina Lisa had influence um, in the Japanese fashion industry. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to kind of talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dig in. Do you have any thoughts about, about her influence on Japan? Yeah, so, I mean, it's really interesting. So, as you've researched also about her, um, you know, Lisa traveled around the world, especially to Asian countries, and was very much inspired by locally made textiles. And I'm not sure if I have the the year right, but I think in 1948, she um, traveled to Japan with her husband, and she was very much impressed by the textiles made in Japan. And you know, as a source of kind of design inspirations for her own work. But she also noticed that the industry kind of lacked the momentum to support emerging designers Mm -hmm. and kind of move fashion forward. So she came up with this idea of organizing a fashion design contest, um, which took place in, I believe, 1949, 1950, and then 1951 and 1953. So the award was called the Tina Lisa Award, and it was organized in partnership with a magazine called Eibu Mainichi, um, which was published by the Mainichi Newspaper Company. And what was notable was not only this idea of, you know, finding and training new talent in fashion design, but the event itself, which was a fashion show, recruited models from across Japan to participate. And this is believed to be the first time that, you know, models were kind of publicly recruited to participate in these types of fashion shows. And the ones who were selected were called Mainichi Fashion Girls. So it was like a group. And, you know, it's kind of like the early form of Victoria's Secret Angels, even though, you know, they were not doing lingerie. And, um, you know, some models from this period went on to become established models in Japan. So I think in, um, that's kind of an interesting influence that Tina Lisa had on Japan. Yeah, and, and um, I've read some articles in the American press saying that the Japanese press sometimes credits her for kind of like 
not necessarily inventing, but like popularizing the modeling profession in Japan, which is just fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. So obviously it was this increased interest in Western style women's wear that sparked Maury's interest in this moment. Can you tell us a little bit about her early um, ventures into creating Western styles women's wear in Japan? Sure. So after the war ended, Mori gets married and, you know, she first becomes a homemaker, but she's quickly got tired of just staying at home. And so she enrolled in a dressmaking school, um, which was, again, kind of experiencing a sort of boom in post-war Japan due to the high demands for Western style women's wear. And so, you know, when I say dressmaking school, it's specifically referring to dressmaking for Western clothes. Mm -hmm. And they were called Yosai Gakko, which literally means like Western garment making school. And so these schools were, you know, training women to make Western clothes, not wafuku or kimono. And, you know, because this was the time period before ready-to-wear clothes were common, um, women either had to make garments at home or order them at tailors. So these schools were often attended by young women as a way to kind of develop homemaking skills before getting married. So even though Mori was already married, um, that was basically the intention that she also had when starting this school. You know, she didn't start out wanting to become a designer by profession, but she simply wanted to be able to have the hand skills to make clothing for herself and also her children. So she graduates after about two and a half years and she just fell in love with the art of dressmaking that she decides to set up a small atelier in Tokyo mm -hmm. in the Shinjuku district. And this is what becomes known as Hiyoshiya, which is the name of her first salon. And you know, in her memoirs, she admits that like she didn't know anything about business or running a company, but um, she just loved designing and making clothes and they became very popular. So, you know, she would source all of these like opulent imported textiles and make women's wear. She also started catering to American women living in Japan, especially the wives of U.S. military officers who were living in Tokyo under, you know, the U.S. occupation. And so these encounters become a learning experience for Mori, who, you know, who had never dressed Western women. And so they brought a lot of sewing patterns and fabrics and other materials from the U.S. And for Mori, it, this was like a very enlightening experience. Yeah, for sure. And, and I was also quite surprised to learn from reading your work that at this same time in the 1950s and into the early 1960s, Mori was also a very well-known costume designer for Japanese films. Can you tell us a little bit more about this aspect of her career? Sure. So relating to her first atelier, Hiyoshiya, the location of this studio was very important, also relating to her film career. It was located in Shinjuku, and Shinjuku was very um, much of an arts and cultural center at the time, and it was home to um, major movie theaters. And there was a theater right across the street from Mori's studio. And so one day, a director from this major film studio called Nikatsu uh, visits her salon, and this marks the beginning of um, a new step in Mori's career. And I think Mori's career, as you mentioned, has been very much overlooked, uh, partly because she had such an expansive career that, you know, spanned over decades. And it was relatively early in her career that she devoted herself to costume design. But in fact, she was very influential and pioneering in designing 
designing and also styling costumes for Japan's top movie stars, mostly women, but also men for some projects. And she ended up working on over 200 films in a matter of just over a decade. And in her books, Mori says that she doesn't even remember how many films she worked <laughs> on because there were so many. And, you know, She worked on multiple projects simultaneously. And even as a scholar, it's also difficult to kind of track this down because many films didn't include the names of costume designers in their end roles back in the 1950s. So when the first film that Mori designed costumes for was in 1954, but her name wasn't included, wasn't credited. And so I think the first time that her name actually appeared in the credits was two years later. And you know, some of the actresses that she dressed include、um, Yoko Minamida. Mie Kitahara, Mariko Okada, you know, names that would be familiar to you know, listeners versed in Japanese cinema.、Mm-hmm. We're going to take a short sponsor break here, but more with Ayaka when we come back. Welcome back. So, Ayaka, 1961 seems to have been a little bit of a turning point in Mori's career. She decides to take a bit of a sabbatical and she does some traveling. Where did she go and why were her experiences abroad especially significant? Yeah, so 1961 definitely was a pivotal moment in her career. She was actually experiencing both physical and mental health complications due to her extremely busy work schedule. You know, she was not only designing costumes for multiple movies at a time, but also overseeing her couture salons in two locations in Tokyo. And in addition, she was starting to feel the limitations of working as a fashion designer in Japan. You know, as I mentioned, even though Western clothing was very much diffused by this time, the environment that surrounded the fashion culture was not always complying with Western fashion. Like there was a lack of accessories and handbags and lingerie. And, you know, homes still had tatami floors, which meant that women had to. On the floors.、Um, and so, you know, these kind of conditions made it difficult. And also for Mori as a fashion designer, you know, the profession itself wasn't established. And so she felt like the, you know, the industry wasn't really supporting designers. And so she takes this、um, break in 1961 and she goes to Paris and spends about 40 days there together with、um, Hiroko Matsumoto, who some people may know because she、uh, modeled for Pierre Cardin.、Mm. And she attended couture shows and even wrote like a report to be published in a Japanese newspaper about the collections. And she also attended Chanel's show and was so impressed with the collection that she wanted to wear. The Chanel pieces. And so she goes to the Maison、um, a few days later and decided to order a couture suit.、Nice. And amazingly, she had the chance to meet Coco Chanel. And according to Mori,、um, Chanel mentioned that Mori was the first customer from Asia that came to her salon and that her straight black hair was so beautiful.、Aww. And you know, during the two fittings, Mori, for the first time in her Life and career, she became the customer of couture. You know, she was always the one making and, you know, designing for her clients. And so she learned a lot from, you know, getting this Chanel suit and really regained her energy to start working in fashion design again. 
And so later in that same year, in 1961, she takes another kind of international travel opportunity and goes to the United States. And she first stops by at San Francisco, where she had a friend who managed a dressmaking school. Um, and then she goes to New York um, to really see how the American fashion industry worked. And so she stays at the Plaza Hotel. You know, she goes to department stores like Saks Fifth Avenue. And is really amazed at how already by this time, ready-to-wear clothing is widely available and marketed according to different price points and categories. And she was also shocked to see that clothing, very cheaply made, manufactured in Japan, were displayed on the lower floors of the department stores. And, you know, because as a designer who was very conscious of sourcing quality fabrics and running a business equivalent to couture in Japan, this experience motivated her to want to take, you know, high quality designs from Japan abroad that could compete and coexist with the high-end couture pieces lined up on those like upper floors of these um, luxury department stores. Mm -hmm. And aside from visiting the department stores and kind of like seeing what was happening there, while Mori was in New York, she also attended a performance of Puccini's opera, Madame Butterfly. And, and I would argue that this performance also altered the trajectory of her career. How so? Yes, absolutely. So it was another one of those experiences, you know, that made her aware of how Japan and Japanese culture were perceived from the outside world, like through a Western lens. So she went to see a production of Madame Butterfly at the Metropolitan Opera. And even though the story and the production are originally made from a Western perspective, she was quite shocked to see how the kimono-inspired costumes were worn on the stage. And, you know, because the kimono is not just about the garment itself, but also the movement of the body, you know, the gestures, the way the wearer is walking. And so all of these details that make up the kind of delicate, beautiful experience of wearing the kimono weren't really reflected in the production. So Mori's kind of taken by the ways in which, you know, Japan is viewed in Western cultures. And she ultimately takes this, you know, the butterfly as a symbol of her brand. And, you know, she starts incorporating the motif in her collections. And Hanai Mori, like herself, becomes associated with the butterfly. And interestingly, once she starts her business in the U.S. and also later in Europe, you know, people call her Madame Mori. And along with her kind of signature butterfly motif, she was often like metaphorically referred to as Madame Butterfly in the oh. press. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was also like, uh, it was on her label, all, you know, like she used it again and again as a motif in her textiles. It was really kind of like the emblem of her house. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. So as Mori decided to enter the American market, she did want to use Japanese textiles. But at the same time, this was also one of her greatest challenges. Why were Japanese textiles limiting to her and how did she address this? So, you know, after seeing how cheaply manufactured Japanese clothing um, was sold in the U.S. and also in Japan, much of the quality textiles were imported. So she decides to kind of embark on a journey around Japan to revisit traditional weavers and dyers, um, especially those making kimono textiles, to find materials that would work for her designs. 
And the primary limitation or obstacle that Mori faced in this new endeavor was the narrow width of the kimono. And I believe, you know, Andres, there was an episode on the kimono exhibition at the V&A and explaining the basic construction of the kimono, but um, how, you know, it's made from a rectangular panel and the width is quite narrow, just about 40 centimeters. So there was no range in the widths of the textiles woven for these, you know, exquisite kimono fabrics that Mori was interested in. So she basically negotiated with the manufacturers so that they could hand weave similar textiles, but in wider rolls mm-hmm. that could um, accommodate the Western style garments that she was making. And in Shiga Prefecture, um, which is one of the main manufacturing centers for Chirimen, which is a type of crepe fabric, Mori found a particular type called Onishibo Chirimen, which had very prominent deep wrinkles. So it was not only lightweight, but it had this nice stretch that was adaptable to Western dress. So Mori had this textile dyed in very vibrant colors and floral patterns and used it in her collections. And one of these dresses is currently in the collection of the Kyoto Costume Institute. Oh, yay. Which is actually, that catalog is how I ended up becoming a fashion historian. Somebody gave it to me as a gift and I devoured it in one day. So it is a wonderful catalog. Yeah. And I am dying to go visit. So maybe maybe in the after times, um, I, I would die to go see their collection. Me too. That's <laughs> been on my list for quite some time. Yeah. So I'm so glad that you brought up um, that one very specific crepe-like textile that she was, you know, customizing and having designed for her needs. I'm hoping that you can paint a picture for our listeners of some of the kind of color palettes and other types of motifs which Maury favored in her own textile designs. Sure. Um, Color was such an important component of her designs and very intentionally. So when Mori expanded her business to the U.S., um, she wanted to express elegance through vibrant colors. And, you know, the collections that survive today, um, as well as those featured in the press, represent often kind of surprising, unexpected color combinations like, you know, blues with pinks and, you know, even like one large butterfly depicted with like five different colors in these like kind of gradation of different hues. So Maury wrote in her book that this was one of the key factors that led to her success in the American industry. And especially because the press picked it up. So one that comes to mind is um, the Deanna Vreeland years in Vogue. And Vreeland was very much a fan of Maury's designs during her tenure at Vogue. And the magazine was one of the first major U.S.-based periodicals to feature Maury's collections um, extensively during the 1960s. And in one feature from 1967, you know, a model is styled in this bold butterfly print jumpsuit. And the caption is described, the color as lacquer red. And um, it says something like, you know, once you've seen this, there's no other red. <sighs> and, um, so, you know, Maury, you know, highlighted this particular magazine feature in her book, noting how pleased she was um, that her use of color was appreciated and really became popular in the U.S. And, you know, in addition to the butterfly motif, there were certain kind of recurring motifs that she returned to, like um, the chrysanthemums and the wave motifs that were was derived from Japanese textiles. And so there were kind of emblems and symbols that she often referred to that became um, quite popular in the United States. Yeah. And, and and I'm so glad you talk about her popularity during the 60s because you also quote her in your own works, her as saying, 
quote, women always like women in other countries. I make a Japanese collection to bring here, New York, but I make an American collection for Japan. So this is really interesting because now she's creating two different lines and she was doing both ready to wear. And was she also continuing her couture offerings? Right. So, you know, going back to her business in Japan, I mean, she had her kind of custom order couture salons, um, Hiyoshia in Tokyo. And then she also established a ready-to-wear brand in 1963 called Vivid. And so, um, you know, some kind of vintage fans may recognize this Vivid label um, attached to some of her uh, works from this period, from like the 1960s and 70s. Um, But Vivid had several locations around Japan. And regarding her business in the U.S., she didn't start out with a vision of distributing her collection so widely. In fact, she just intended to do business with some select specialty stores that would carry her products. Mm-hmm. But because they were so well received from the get-go when you know she first joined New York Press Week in 1965, her products were sold at department stores and specialty stores around the U.S. And Actually, the very first store that sold her collections was the New York-based luxury boutique, Evelyn Burns. And there is one evening ensemble from the Mets collection that has a retail label from um, Evelyn Burns. But from the following season, um, department stores like Bartdorf Goodman, um, Bonwit Teller, Henry Bendel, Neiman Marcus, you know, just to name a few, started selling her designs. And, you know, how it worked was that the buyers would order her ready-made collections each season that would be made in her Tokyo studio and then sent back to, to the U.S. And there were also some custom ordered pieces ordered from the couture salons at department stores. So Mori would receive these very detailed orders for sizes and designs, and again, would manufacture them in Tokyo, and then they were shipped to the U.S. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why her evening wear collections could cost anywhere from like seven to $800 to a few thousand dollars a piece. Wow. Well, you know, I just think this is so interesting because here you have this one designer and she's single-handedly kind of cross-pollinating both of these markets, right? She's capitalizing on the desire in Japan for Yofuku. And in America, she's capitalizing on the desire for a Japanese aesthetic. But the marketing of her designs in the U.S. press kind of sometimes like glosses over the fact that her designs are uniquely Japanese. Oftentimes, the press will refer to her as Far Eastern or describe her clothes as Oriental. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on this in terms of the fact that she was kind of oftentimes labeled as an Asian designer rather than a uniquely Japanese designer. That is very true. And, you know, I think we start to see more of that as Maury's brand expands in the U.S. Um, So it's no longer limited to the exclusive handmade luxury collections that Mori was directly importing from Japan, but the products and, you know, their designs diversify through various collaborations with American companies. Mm-hmm. And naturally, the promotion in the media and, you know, displays and retailers reflect how her designs were viewed, you know, often orientalized. And, you know, some that from a contemporary perspective may cross the lines of what we call cultural appropriation. But again, we are observing a time when even after decades of the widespread westernization of Japanese women's wear, Americans largely believe that Japanese women still wore the kimono in their everyday lives. And 
for Mori, it was an honor to have this type of exposure in the American and European industries. And she very much appreciated it. And so I remember, you know, for example, reading about a Bergdorf Goodman window display that featured her collection, I believe, during the holiday season. And as Mori described it, it was decorated with like oriental style lanterns and, you know, other props. And her tone was completely positive. You know, she thought it was elegant and complimented her garments and was very thoughtful of the cultural exchanges that her collection represented. But of course, I've also come across a number of articles and magazine features that associate Mori's work with concepts and you know, styles of like Oriental or for Eastern cultures that regardless of the time can be perceived negatively or, you know, can be problematic. So I think it's a case-by-case situation, but for the most part, I believe that Mori was very honored and satisfied with the ways um, in which her brand was developing and perceived by the American public. And develop it did <laughs> yeah. because um, around the same time in the late 60s, going into the early 70s, she also expands her offerings in the U.S. to include quite a few licensed products, including home goods. Would you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. It was in 1969 and 1970 that Maury started investing in both ready-to-wear and also the licensing business in the U.S. And one popular collection was called the Banlong Collection, um, which was a series of knitwear made of textiles made by Japanese textile manufacturers um, that were then finished with the Banlong process created by the New York-based company Bancroft. And this was a very lower priced collection compared to her evening wear pieces. So it became very popular and also heavily advertised in newspapers and magazines. And they often featured very fun prints um, derived from traditional Japanese kimonos and art, but translated into more kind of practical, comfortable dresses. And other collaborations included ones with West Point Pepperell and Martex. Um, they produced like bed linens, bath towels, bathrobes, and those became really popular too and were kind of embellished with her signature motifs like butterflies and chrysanthemums. And there's also a motif called Love Note, um, which was kind of inspired by Japanese calligraphy. Oh, lovely. All right. After another short break from our sponsor, we're going to hear more. Welcome back, dress listeners. Maury had more than a few celebrity clients, but I would like to talk about one of them who I'm sure almost all of our listeners are familiar with, and that is Princess Grace of Monaco. She was really a cherished client of Maury's, and in the 1970s, she invited her to give a charity fashion show in Monaco. So here she is now, Maury, showing in Europe. And this is extremely significant as it's the next chapter in her expansion. What happens next? Yeah, so um, by the mid-70s, Maury's business is doing very well in the U.S. Um, she has a freestanding flagship store in New York City. Her collections are distributed nationwide. And you know her name becomes more widely known through the various kind of mass market products and licensing business that she develops. And even though this was financially successful, Maury started to feel a bit pressured to constantly meet the demands of the mass market consumption. You know, for instance, there were seasons where she decided not to incorporate her 
signature and butterfly motif. And then all the buyers would ask why and, you know, suggest that she use it because they sell well. So she starts to feel a bit constrained um, creatively as a designer, and she starts thinking about her next steps. And that was when her longtime client, Grace of Monaco, invites her to participate in a charity show in Monaco. And what's interesting also is that Grace of Monaco became her client when her husband, Prince Rainier, visited Texas in Dallas to attend a marketing initiative, an event uh, organized by Neiman Marcus. And Maury's collections were you know, heavily distributed at Neiman Marcus. So Prince Rainier orders uh, a few pieces for his wife. And you know that's when she really becomes a fan of um, Hanawa and Maury collections. And eventually that led to this charity show in Monaco. And so just like in 1961, when Mori first went to Paris, it was actually the model Hiroko who suggested that Mori also show the collection in Paris as well. And so this begins her journey to set up a couture maison in Paris. And, you know, Mori writes that it had definitely helped that by that time, her name was known internationally and that she had close connections with couturiers like Givenchy and Cardon who referred her to the syndicate. So, you know, once she's officially accepted into the syndicate, she again starts this kind of busy international lifestyle, living and working between Paris, Tokyo, and New York. (laughs) She's doing it all, doing it all. Um, I'm curious, how was her work received by the French? And and would you tell us a little bit more about this latter portion of her career in France? Because she was there working as a couturier for something like 30 years. Right. So, you know, the fact that Mori was the first Asian couturier to be admitted to all couture and also being one of the few female couturiers in the establishment was a very big deal and heavily covered by the press. And I believe when she joined, it was the first time in 10 years that a new member was admitted. Mm -hmm. So the news garnered much attention. And what was distinctive about her early collections in Parasol Couture was that she didn't really push that um, Japanese aesthetic or identity forward um, as she had done in the U.S., and, you know, making this shift away from New York, Mori wanted to fully explore her creativity as a designer, you know, not so much constrained by the commercial needs, as I mentioned, you know, before. So like the kimono patterns or, you know, the butterfly motif. So her first collection was very successfully received. But then after her second collection, I believe, she received a slightly critical review that, you know, basically I outlined how she was too French and too Parisian. And (sighs) she quickly realized that, you know, in order to set herself apart in couture, again, it was her Japanese identity. And, you know, that's what she did so well, um, kind of merging the um, Western market and, you know, the Japanese identity that she had. So she remarked that in every couture collection, about a third of the designs had some type of association or inspiration coming from whether it was Japanese craft or textile making or just, you know, visually like aesthetics. So it's quite impressive that for the next 27 years until her retirement in 2004, she launched both couture and ready-to-wear collections in Paris. So four times a year um, based in Paris. And her clients included very high profile women across the world, including celebrities like Lauren Bacall, But um, she also continued to cater to many clients in Japan, like actresses and singers, politicians, and members of the royal family. 
And I just love this next bit that you wrote about in your work on her because her career really comes full circle in 1985. So she's still working in Paris, but she had was asked to design the costumes for La Scala in Milan's production of Madame Butterfly. So once again, she's returning back to her roots in costume design as she had done early in her career in Japan. And simultaneously, she's given the chance to right some of those wrongs that she felt when she saw the production in 1961 in New York. Would you tell us a little bit about her designs for this production of Madame Butterfly in 1985? Yeah, so Mori was invited to design the costumes for this uh, production at La Scala, and it was directed by um, the renowned stage director Keita Asari. And the production itself was organized entirely by Japanese staff. So, you know, Mori felt that this was her moment to share, you know, her own vision of Japanese elegance. And for the protagonist, Chocho-san, she designed a light pink bridal kimono and paired it with a, a kind of a Western style of veil featuring a large butterfly motif. And she also designed a violet kimono embellished with small white butterflies. So she was like literally kind of translating that butterfly motif to these costumes. And it was a culmination of all of the work that she had done thus far, mm-hmm. um, taking Japanese traditions and textiles and art and adapting them to the wardrobes of women in the Western world. And so, you know, she reflected that finally, after over 20 years since her first viewing of Madame Butterfly in New York City, which, you know, left her very shocked and perplexed, she felt as though she had done her part as a Japanese designer, you know, breaking in and kind of working in the Western fashion industry. I just love that. It's it's so, it's a, such a heartwarming kind of like little note to the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as you just mentioned a moment ago, uh, she did close her couture operations in 2004 with something like 50 years of experience working in the fashion industry around the world. And she's still with us. She's 95 years old today. And I'm curious, Ayaka, as if you have any thoughts on Mori's legacy in terms of paving the way for this whole new wave of Japanese designers like Rei Kabukubo and Issey Miyake and Yoshi Yamamoto, who after her kind of rose to prominence in the 1980s. Sure. Um, the new generation of Japanese designers who broke out into the Western fashion world in the 70s and 80s had you know, very different approaches to fashion design from Mori, you know, who was, um, their periods overlap too. Um, she was debuting as a couturier around the same time. And, you know, Mori did believe that couture and these like emerging avant-garde fashions could coexist. And so in that sense, she didn't see them as competition. And in terms of the legacy that she left behind for the younger generations, I believe that she played an integral role in establishing credibility for the Japanese and Tokyo fashion industry. You know, starting from the time when the label Made in Japan was linked to cheap manufacturer and the fact that like all Japanese women wore kimonos, you know, her tireless efforts to challenge those prevailing notions through both design and business proved to the outside world that Japanese designers were not only capable of creating quality products, but also establishing businesses internationally. And indeed, Mori was very active in Japan as an industry pioneer and leader, organizing various initiatives to move the industry forward, you know, from serving as a judge on fashion design contests, 
to kind of communicating her experiences in her memoirs and books and magazine columns to inviting American and European industry leaders to Japan for certain industry events and business opportunities. She was very much of a gatekeeper between these different cultures. So needless to say, her designs have been enamored by so many across the globe since the mid-20th century. But her influence on the Japanese industry as a whole and kind of setting the stage for Tokyo to earn the status of a fashion capital cannot be overlooked. Yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Hanae Mori. I mean, I learned so much. I knew who she was. I knew that she, um, you know, was like the first Japanese female couturier to become, a, well, a officially licensed couturier. But I didn't know all these intricacies and the, like, you know, the length and the breadth of her career. So, so dress listeners, um, you know, sometimes we are learning right alongside you guys. So Ayaka, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Ayaka, we are so grateful to you for joining us today and sharing really all of your incredible research on Hana'e Mori. April, I will say I joined you in learning so much. And I and just like we always say when people ask us what we like about producing this show, for us, it really is such a pleasure to constantly be reading and learning from the work of other academics and scholars in our field in the course of preparing for the show. And this episode is really such a fantastic example of that for both of us. So thank you again so much, Ayaka. Yes, and I cannot agree more. I mean, Cass and I, I think we were both certainly aware of Maury's work previously, of course, and I was at least familiar with her use of the butterfly, but I had no idea about some of the layers of meaning behind her use of the butterfly. So, you know, I was also completely unaware of this sheer breadth of her career and that she was also kind of this badass businesswoman. You know, um, sometimes people ask us, you and I, questions about fashion history that you and I can't answer. And I just want to say that's okay. That's what that's what research is for. And that's why we love our guests. You know, go to the expert, go to the person that's been working on this subject for years. Yes, absolutely. We love our guests. And of course, we love our listeners. And to all of you out there, thank you so much for joining us today. That does it for us this week. Perhaps you will consider adding a butterfly print in the spirit of Maury into your springtime ensembles. Next time you get dressed. And remember to join us this Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer listener questions and are keep you up to date on all the latest in the field and happenings of fashion history now. And if you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, please feel free to DM us on Instagram at just underscore podcast, where we also post images to accompany each week's episode. And of course, you can always email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you on Thursday. Bye. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.